they were supposedly dating two lesbians. Um, Sorry, that sounded like the two of them were were dating dating two two lesbians. lesbians. (laughs) I'm Charlie Sohn, a screenwriter and journalist. I'm Agnes Reese, a pop singer and songwriter. And this is Mysteries of the Euroverse. Today, we're bringing you the Queerovision episode. First, we deep dive into the queer history of the contest. Then, we speak to Belgium's unapologetically queer 2023 contestant, Gustav, whose solo career came to a halt when he refused to stay in the closet. Finally, Tony-nominated actor Robin DeJesus drops by for a game we're calling Gay or Eurovision. We take a look behind the scenes at all the scandal songs and queens. So come along as we traverse all the mysteries of the Euroverse. All the mysteries of the Euroverse. And we're here uh, with episode two of Mysteries of the Euroverse. It's the Queerovision episode. Hey, Queer. Hey, Queer. How are you, Queer? I'm Queerin. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> Just a little bit more. And um, something else that gets a little bit queerer every moment is the Eurovision Song Contest. Truly. And this is a thing that, honestly, like we talk about a lot, right? Which is like the gay community's affinity for Eurovision and sort of how that came about. I mean, we went to Eurovision twice and we can certainly see it there. And I think what we're seeing, too, is that I actually was straight when I went to Eurovision. And aren't you so thankful for the the wonderful work? Eurovision probably was the gayest experience I've had, and I say that as someone who has had gay sex. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So this episode is going to explore why are queer people so drawn to Eurovision? And part of that story is that Eurovision very early on um, embraced gay rights, probably ahead of uh, most of the world. So we're going to explore that, but we're also going to explore the ways in which that reputation is a little bit more complicated than sometimes the gloss it gets. What's kind of amazing is uh, the queer history of Eurovision starts pretty much right around the beginning of Eurovision. Um, Jean-Claude Pascal, who represented France in 1961, uh, sang this song, Us Lovers, which I think... Let me just start with a little translated lyric so we can, we can talk about it. We lovers, they want to separate us. They would like to prevent us from being happy. The time will come, and I will be able to love you without anyone in town talking about it. Gay. Well, I'm pretty gay. Yeah. yeah. We know now that Jean-Claude Pascal was gay and that this was very much uh, coded subtext. It should not be surprising that it would take a little bit longer um, for anything that was more out than that to... Yeah, so uh, 1986, yes. um, Norway, where I'm from, Ketil Stockholm, uh, had the song Romeo. And behind him were dancing drag queens. Uh, the dancing drag queens were referred to as the great garlic girls. I mean, honestly, combining two of my great loves, which were drag queens and Italian food. It just happens anyway. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, three years later, in 1989, Denmark becomes the first country in Europe, but also the first country in the world to introduce same-sex partnerships. You know, the the first legal step towards legalized marriage which, in the world. Which, again, is just to point out the fact that, you know, Eurovision 
which has branded itself a family show, was putting drag queens on television for families in 1986, which was three years before even the first country considered uh, registered partnerships. But there also was sort of a counter struggle, right? A backlash to a Europe increasingly moving towards acceptance. Right. And even, you know, I think a lot of times people see, you know, Scandinavian countries as like a beacon of gay rights. But I know firsthand that these things were also tense, hot debates in, in those countries as well. When a sentence includes gay, tense, and hot, I immediately perk up. <laughs> In 1998, uh, Donna International was representing Israel, an openly trans woman, and won the competition. Yeah. And this is actually the first year in the competition that um, was entirely done through televotes. And when we say 100% televote winner, some countries did not have the infrastructure yet to be able to do it by televote, and they had juries. I think some of the smaller member countries switched over from carrier pigeon. Is that correct? <laughs> Should I call out which countries? Yeah, you call out which countries so yeah, they can yeah, let's, really, let's really, really go viral. <laughs> um, also, another way, to, good way to go viral: carrier pigeons. <laughs> they carry a lot of diseases. <laughs> but it's incredible because we like to think about uh, juries at Eurovision as the sort of educated, cosmopolitan. But it is interesting that the first trans person to win the competition did so purely based on the popular vote. And she won with a song that was explicitly about her femininity. Not just femininity, but her womanhood. Looking now, 25 years later, where the favorite anti-gay or anti-LGBTQ line from at least super conservative people in the US is, what is a woman? Right. 25 years before that, you have someone who's openly trans who's, the who literally answers that dumb question in song. And this is like, I think, my favorite story about this. Currently, it calls out women like Aphrodite, Victoria, Cleopatra. But um, when she first got the song, it was all Old Testament women. And so it was like, Viva Rachel, Viva Miriam, Viva Sarah. The Veya Hafta that my synagogue uh, had us sing was very close to the original version of Diva. The fact that the original version was about comparing a trans woman, essentially, to iconic women from the Hebrew Bible, I think, is I mean, even yeah. more progressive. And that's part of it, is that Dana International really did cause a huge controversy in Israel. Uh, this guy, uh, Shlomo Ben-Isri, uh, who's a member of Shas, which is this awful right-wing party, basically raged uh, saying that gender-reaffirming surgeries were worse than sodomy. Now, I have to say, there are very few things that are better than sodomy, so maybe technically I'm in agreement on that. <laughs> um, but I just don't think he uh, brought the right spirit to the conversation. I think that's fair. And, and the, the interesting thing is, you know, to jump to kind of the next uh, important moment, we're staying with Israel. So Israel's uh, entry into the year 2000 uh, was by this band Ping Pong, and it was called Sameach. The staging of that song... Uh, included the first same-sex kiss, but it was done by straight people. So, you know. Listen, it was it was the early aughts, girl. You beggars can't be choosers. <laughs> I mean, so um, Israel didn't love the kiss. No, no. <laughs> um, but I think what really pushed it over the edge um, was the band was reprimanded for waving both Syrian flags and um, Israeli flags on stage. Now, I think this is absolutely insane. At the time, Israel was in peace negotiations with Syria. 
So the idea that Israel would then get upset at a band merely calling for peace, right? right? That's what the Israeli government was doing as well, right? Like right. being in peace negotiations, yes. no one is in peace negotiations without, you know, some level of a goal of ending up in peace, yes. right? Whether and, it's successful or not. And, and, and what's so insane to me about this is somehow waving these flags was seen as such a violation that Israel disowned the act and actually find them, making them responsible for the costs of being at Eurovision. And to bring it back to the queerness of it all, you know, Israel kind of has a complicated relationship yes. when it comes to queerness. On one side, especially if you look at um, the history of Eurovision, several important firsts came through Israel. Yeah. At the same time, it could be part of this larger project of pinkwashing. What they're actually doing is subtextually saying, we're great on gay rights, but look at all these other countries around us that are Muslim majority or Arab countries. And um, therefore, you as a European institution should take our side. And what's complicated about that is Israel's relationship to gay people is not uncomplicated, right? Dana International is a perfect example. Anytime there's like a pride in Madrid or something like that, she uh, is going to be welcomed with open arms by the Israeli embassy in whatever country she's in. And yet, she's not really asked to perform at official government functions within Israel. What you're stating about Dana International as an example, that's not something you just came up with. That, you know, that's basically her words. Yeah. Right? To me, it just points out this thing of like, you can't isolate one rights struggle. Because the, the moment you let people into the coalition who don't believe in someone's human rights is the minute that everybody's rights are uh, at risk. The next year, in 2002, Sestra is uh, representing Slovenia. Um, and it was a drag act. And it caused a huge debate in Slovenia, but also in the European Parliament. I think this kind of harks back to a big reason why we decided to do this podcast. Yeah. It would be very curious if we started to see that contestants on American Idol were being discussed in Congress. Right. For the first attempt at a gay kiss that actually involves an actual gay person, um, we have to turn to a beacon of gay rights in the world. Uh, that's right, Russia. Here you have Russia under Vladimir Putin sending this band Tattoo. And Tattoo is made up of two women who were supposedly dating. Um, now, in truth, it was all a sham. One of the women actually was bisexual. So it really would have been a kiss involving at least one gay person, which I have to say was my standard in college. Um, <laughs> and I think one of the craziest things about it is this kiss actually was censored by the European Broadcasting Union. And what they said was, Eurovision is a family show. Then by the time we get to 2007, now we have the winner of the competition, Maria Serafovic. Uh, she represented uh, Serbia with the song Malitva. And she won the competition. Yes, she may not have been out, but no one was confused about what they were watching on stage. Exactly. Well, because it's also, it's less about her and how she identifies and much more about the reaction and what people saw, right? Absolutely. So it's like the fact that the winner in 2007 was a queer-coded song, at the very least. And the runner-up was Verka Serduchka's Lasha Tumbai. And it was a drag act. The winning song is completely messing with the expectation of the, how a woman should present. Yeah. And then you have the second-place number completely messing with 
the expectation of how a man should present. There's also a side story here that we'll get to in a later episode about the queer history of Ukraine, right? Because right? the more that Putin starts talking about wokeism and the destruction of the family and blah, 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 it's like the more that those ideas become toxic in Ukraine. Right. That's a story you can't tell really without Verka Serduchka. Verka's song, Lasha Tumbai, um, had a hook that nobody knew what it meant. Yeah. And Verka claimed that Lasha Tumbai meant milkshake in Mongolian. This is not true. <laughs> and what became clear eventually was that um, Lasha Tumbai, when sung aloud, is Russia goodbye, right? So here we have a uh, protest against Russia uh, going hand in hand with queer presentation. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you took the worst out of my mouth, really. But I, but I think it's exactly that because, because you can't separate them, right? Yes. You can, of course, imagine that Russia goodbye as a song would be perfect for these times. Yes. Well, but then it, how can you separate the, you know, the queen from the song? You know? Yes. <laughs> Carl, why would we ever want to separate uh, hey. a queen from her song? But I do think like that, that's a really good point that like actually once a song is selected, it is representing a country. Right. You know, I think Verka representing Ukraine changed the national identity of Ukraine a little bit. Yeah. I think the next big moment in the queer history of Eurovision is Conchita verse performance. I think you'd almost struggle to find a queer person in Europe within a certain age range who wouldn't mention this song yeah. as, as a moment in history. Yes, 100%. Uh, the fact that, you know, what Conchita represented, I mean, so she uh, represented Austria in 2014 with the song Rise Like a Phoenix. Yes, and this exists in the shadow of a larger fracturing uh, that was happening in Europe, um, which we're going to talk about in our politics episode. But both Turkey and Hungary pulled out of the competition in the years following Conchita's performance. And members of both Erdogan's government in Turkey and Orban's government in Hungary uh, used Conchita's victory as an excuse. Yeah, I mean, they, they weren't mincing words. I mean, they were pretty <laughs> clear. You know, um, TRT, which is the broadcaster in Turkey, the chief of TRT, Ibrahim Erin, said... As a public broadcaster, we cannot broadcast live at 9 p.m. when children are watching an Austrian with a beard and a skirt who claims not to have a gender. Ironically, turning Eurovision's uh, It's a Family Show argument against Tattoo back around at the EBU right. uh, for Conchita. One of the most amazing experiences that I think we had at Eurovision uh, this year was going to see Conchita perform at Euroclub. You know, people talk about artists like Beyonce and stuff like that when they walk into a room and there's something about them that just, you know, without doing anything, they just command the room. And yeah. I really got to say that Conchita really has that. The highlight for me, at least, was Conchita sang Sertab Ariner's song. Uh, and now Sertab was Turkey's uh, winner. Given the context of Erdogan leaving the competition and using Conchita as a scapegoat, that the response would be a really loving, beautiful rendition of Turkey's winning song, um, I thought was just wonderful shade, not thrown Sertab's way, who right. is not in control of the Turkish government. <laughs> Correct. You know, a winning act or an iconic act changes the competition forever. You know, yeah. even a year where a ballad wins, the next year tends to be ballad heavy because yes. people try to repeat a success. Post Conchita, it's like, 
the queer community takes ownership of this festival. Yeah. You know, there's another moment that's really important. 2018, you know, uh, three years after Conchita hosted. Now, the EBU is faced with a bit of a scandal. You know, after the first semifinal, uh, rumors are all over Twitter about the fact that the Chinese broadcaster, Mango TV, censored this performance, the, uh, the Irish performance, where there was a same-sex romantic dance. Uh, and just uh, for context, China has never competed in the competition, but for years, Mango TV had been an official broadcaster of the show. And a statement comes from the EBU, and it is as follows. This is not in line with the EBU's values of universality and inclusivity. We will therefore immediately be terminating our partnership with the broadcaster. Right, which is a very, I mean, a great statement. But the swiftness of this action really points out how Eurovision can sometimes undermine its values by not being consistent. China is not a member country, and it took them longer to kick Russia out post-confirming that Russia had invaded Ukraine than uh, it took them to cancel their contract with Mango TV. I mean, listen, I, I think those are very valid arguments. And I think, you know, it's like, it's one of those cases where two things can be true at once. Totally. Which, which I think the only problem with it, though, is that it lends credibility to the Erdogans and the Orbans of the world. Because what they're saying is... It's white, less about pro-gay and it's more about... Colonial, anti, yes. Or, anti or anti-East. I think sometimes they are probably under the understanding that by keeping it to values and, and trying to avoid the politics of it all, it's, it's kind of keeping, um, you know, all the children in the classroom from revolting, so to speak, you know. Right. Um, and but, then it, but then it becomes a thing of them prioritizing, let's say, gay rights over Palestinian rights, over re refugee rights. If you call gay rights a value, which I think it should be, why aren't refugee rights a value? No, I mean, like, why are you saying that's politics? I, you know? I don't disagree with you. And, and we'll get into this yes, in the politics 100%. episode. You know, I think that kind of leads us into this year's contestant, Gustav. No, there's no way you can watch that act and not be like, that man is a homosexual. Yeah, but, right. But also, you know, the, the, the very clear references to ballroom culture. Yes. And um, so, you know, instead of us talking about it, I think we should throw it over to the interview. First of all, we kind of just curious about what was your relationship to your vision when you were younger? Like, were you drawn to it? Yeah, I'm from Belgium. So in, in, uh, we were part of Eurovision from the very beginning. And it's really something that, especially during my childhood, really uh, was as important as football matches. It's just something that we all would get together for uh, with sometimes a whole family even. And we would watch it together and you would give points and you would... As a queer man, you're already drawn to all the glamour that goes with television. <laughs> yes. So that, was, that definitely made it even more attractive for me. Was there an act that, that really drew you into it? Uh, I think something like Euphoria by Lorene was something that definitely changed the trajectory of, of Eurovision. And it was also one of the, I think one of the first songs in a long time that really had an international uh, following and that had chart success in the UK, which hasn't happened a lot um, before. I just remember sitting in front of the telly with, you know, my friends and, and you know, a glass of wine and watching her perform. And it's quite amazing that 11 years later, I'm on the same stage with her. That was a bit of a mind-blowing thing. I mean, you came out fairly early, right? So can you talk a little bit about what that was like and how Eurovision kind of played into that? Yeah, I came out, I think I was 14, so it must have been 1995. Um, but I was lucky enough that to have a family first and foremost, my parents and my brother who really surrounded me with love. And 
like when I was seven years old, I really wanted to do like this lip sync um, contest we have in Belgium. And I, I wanted to be Madonna and they were like, we'll get you the wig, we'll get you the shoes. It's all good. So I never, that, that instills a sort of like a, a self-love that is irreplaceable, I, I believe. And then hearing stories from from other queer friends of mine and where they had it very hard, I had it very easy in that sense. I think to go on to the theme of Eurovision, because of you is a song about just in general family. And in, in my sense, it was also a chosen family, but at the same time, yeah, it's a great ode to my parents and my brother and the love that I received. Because the song is really about celebrating yourself, but knowing that that's impossible without thanking the people who brought you to the place of self-acceptance. You said 90, around 95 is when you came out. And then just a few years later, uh, Eurovision has an openly trans winner. You would never associate the word punk with Eurovision, but the attitude is punk to me. Because, yeah, I remember watching Dana International win in 98. Um, and it was very much like, uh, it was a huge deal everywhere. Like it was, it was very much embraced in my memory of it. And I, fi- I still find I'm quite punk because, you know, it, it was the 90s. And for something like this to happen and to give it that visibility, maybe I'm naive, but I do think that might have had something of an impact on other countries and seeing what is possible. It is a sign of hope that you give to people who don't necessarily have that hope yet. Right. And I find that very, very good. And and I guess uh, it probably was around the same time that you released your first single, Gonna Lose You at 17. Uh, under the artist name Stefan. Can you talk about how that all came about and what was it like to launch a career that young? I started singing and making music from from very early on and writing songs when I was about 12. and was already in the process of recording my own music in studios by the time I was 14, 15 years old. So I, yeah, I signed my first to that 17. And I think the song came out when I was 18. Uh, Gonna Lose You was actually about one of my first like uh, crushes that I had on, on on a boy. And, you know, the whole, I'm falling in love with a straight boy when you're like 14 years old, that kind of story. We all know the story, I think. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a very, it was a very personal song for me. It, it felt like a dream come true because in Belgium, it, it took off and, and I became something of a pop star here. But then it quickly became clear that I wasn't willing to take the steps that were expected from pop stars in those days, which meant hiding my sexuality, which meant, you know, catering to what they presumed would be my audience, which was for them teenage girls. It was really said to me like, so we don't mind you having a boyfriend or being gay or even being flamboyant. Just don't do that on stage, please, because we have to sell records. I consider that a great gift because it made me realize where my priorities are and where my integrity lies. Well, was that something you grappled with? Because it is kind of hard to like, you want to keep the authenticity, but also kind of turning down these things that you've been wanting is must have been tough as well. I think sometimes you go more with your gut when you're young because you don't really have the full cerebral capacity sometimes to think about these things. But I really felt something guttural that was really wrong. This isn't what I wanted it to be. And now I'm done. But I think there was always this sense of hope. I can be a singer. I can be an arranger, I can be a vocal coach, I can be a backing vocalist, I can produce, I can write. Well, and I think that does really, I mean, separate you from a lot of other, you know, pop artists. I'd imagine that there are ways in which all of those different sides of your life inform each other. I do think um, playing all those roles in the industry, um, it it gave me a sense of safety because I knew I can do all these things and I can make a living out of this. But it also made me sometimes more ambitious. Like with Eurovision, I was a backing vocalist twice. And I really started to feel like, I think I want to be 
upfront there. I think I want to be part of this, but it was because I really had a chance twice to see the beast from within. Just seeing, literally also seeing how um, simple things like how first rehearsals and second rehearsals are watched upon with like such a magnitude of people who are giving their opinion and how that informs the bookmakers and how that will inform your positioning. All that kind of stuff, I think is you have to be aware of that as an artist. Well, they changed the the rules uh, this year where there was only allowed, the BBC were only allowed to be inside of the arena when we did your first and second rehearsals. Whereas before it was all on YouTube and everyone could follow the rehearsals from all over the world. But nonetheless, I was acutely aware of the fact that it was still being watched and people would see the video. And I told everyone who was there with me, doesn't matter if it's rehearsal, you have to be on stage like it's your performance of the night because that's how people will look at you. You were in that unique situation to have that, you know, knowledge firsthand. Uh, Even though I, I was prepared for structural things that I experienced in Eurovision, being on that stage and doing what I had to do was still because it was the first time I did it as, as a solo artist. So it was still very new. Because we when we arrived in Liverpool, I was, I think my position was 32nd out of 37 contestants. But I did realize that my act was going to elevate it as well. So I'm very happy that that kind of was rewarded. We talked about leaving Stefan behind earlier and then now landing on Gustav. And uh, how... Um, how did you sort of decide on that name? I realized I still had a lot of ambitions as a solo artist, but I did feel I had to break away from this Stefan story because it was still something that was hurting. And Gustav became like a manifestation of an artist that didn't have to make compromises, that could be openly queer, that could involve themes about queerness in his music. As a solo artist, you kind of entered the music industry in two different times that had very different ways they looked at queer artists. Did you feel like kind of Gustav got to um, heal some of the pain that Stefan experienced? Uh, yes, that's a very good metaphor. <laughs> Even though it wasn't particularly written with um, the idea that I wanted to do that on Eurovision because it wasn't written for Eurovision, the song. I wrote it with Jawad Alul, a fellow queer artist. But the song was definitely, everything we wrote together was about freedom, about freedom of expression, about celebration. To go to Eurovision and to to go through to the final, to, to be in seventh place in the end, it did feel like an embrace from, from Europe. And that feels like a great pat on the shoulder for someone who was rejected by the, for their sexuality right. 20 years ago. I mean, I think part of that, I mean, and, and you've said this before, is that like um, you actually had your chosen family on stage with you, right? Um, and so, so can you talk about how that sort of ties into the way that you want to communicate queer culture to a, a broader audience. Being on stage with uh, like Monique Harkum, Chantal Kashala, and Sandrine van Andenhoven are three singers and friends of mine that I've worked with for over 20 years. Like the person I've, I've become as a singer, as an artist, was completely informed by these three people. Uh, Lola and Veronica, the two drag queens, are friends of mine. I worked at their parties here in Belgium a lot. And then my husband, who did all the visuals, and he's, he's my visual director for everything. He does my videos, he does my, my pictures, does everything. He was right there uh, on the side of the stage. There are going to be moments when you feel, I had them for sure, where you feel like, oh my God, can I do this? And so they know exactly how to be with you, how to kind of like make you chill out. And how was it like working with with your husband as the visual director? Did, was, was, it, was it tense at all? Yeah, yeah. And I understand the question because I get asked the question a lot. But honestly, it was lovely. But I know some friends of mine who work together as well, and it can become tense and it can become 
Um, sometimes when they give a work-related um, comment, it feels like it's an emotional comment, and then you know, then that starts up a fight. I'm just trying to paint a picture. Uh, <laughs> with us, once again, completely unfamiliar with that. <laughs> I think it it speaks to what you were saying about the chosen family, which I think just again speaks to this sort of unapologetic queerness of it all. No, I, I want to say though, with, with the with the unapologetic thing, it's true. I think for me, like um, here in Belgium, for example, while Belgium is definitely an open-minded country, there were still, especially when I won the national final, there was a lot of backlash and a lot of homophobic. Uh, comments and hatred for for me, but I did make a point of any time that in an interview I always said my husband, my, my and I knew that would that would be a normalization for people who maybe don't have that reference, and yeah. I think it did work because I did get a lot of comments by the end like I love you and your husband like little grandmothers who just come up to us like we think you're so adorable and so cute. You did uh, mention uh, some backlash that you got after your Eurovision win. Can you can you talk about that? So I do understand that people have favorites and that some people will go quite far to defend their favorites. But where I draw the line is where it becomes personal. For example, I won with one point in my national final here in Belgium and that already caused controversy. Plus I was really, I'm known in the industry, but I'm not known on a mainstream level here. They they found a stick to, to, to hit me with. Like you didn't deserve this, so now we can call you a fag. Like if people want to call me what they want to call me, I couldn't change their minds. But if I was 20 years younger, I think I would have had a much harder time because, you know, I'm I'm 43 at this point. I'm married, uh, you know, and just growing older and generally makes you give less Fs. So, um, <laughs> so you know, that that, that definitely helped. But I, I do think, um, yeah, you, sh- you shouldn't underestimate what that does to a person because even for me, if someone who has some experience, I did have to sometimes really consciously put it aside. Mentally, especially. You know, this concept of culture wars is such a huge a talking point here. I find that, you know, a lot of American talking points, they they travel. I'm curious if you saw that a lot of, some of that backlash might have been fueled by some of this. What I will say, of course, is that, you know, by especially something like TikTok that has such an impact and has such a less controlled algorithm, if you are... Um, putting yourself into a position where you you want to be open to that kind of alt right, crazy theories, right. you will see only those theories on your on your app. Now people can choose almost sometimes a bit what their reality is. But I mean, more like uh, I think in Belgium, those kind of elements are coming into everyone's uh, mainstream attention as well. It does work both ways. Through TikTok, you can find, uh, you know, hateful stuff and all of that. But it's also like queer kid in a small town, right? And I, I think about this with Because of You, and I grew up in the 90s as well, and even finding songs like that, particularly until you could go to clubs and stuff. I had, it's something I didn't think about in, in what I was saying, but you're right. If that works both ways. Of course, if there's a, a little queer kid in maybe an isolated situation, because he looks up these things, he will be surrounded by that kind of love all of a sudden as well. I, I think that visually with your performance, it's very clear that when it comes to queerness, it's so much more than just what you represent and bringing that into the performance. And and with you talking about your ch- like chosen family, I'm I'm curious whether that was just the way it naturally came about because these are the people you've been surrounded with or if that was sort of a specific choice that you go, no, I want to make sure that this is a broader... Uh, you know. Yeah. No, it was definitely, I think it was both. I felt intuitively like um, this is going to be about something more than just me. And also because the song was about 
thanking the people. So I was like, I'm going to put certain elements on national television that especially in Belgium won't necessarily be brought to a mainstream light, meaning elements of ballroom culture, meaning elements of drag culture. And then it became immediately with me about we have to find the right liaison in ballroom culture. And this is why we chose Pussy from the House of West. But it was definitely, I knew that I was sneaking messages that weren't particularly mainstream in Europe onto a very big stage. Well, and and speaking of important representation, I think it would be terrible to do this interview and not talk about the hats. And, and <laughs> <laughs> so it's so serious. I'm like, what is he going to say now? Yeah. And then it's hats. Okay, good. Okay, good. <laughs> Where do you get your hats? <laughs> it really, I have a lot of hats and my husband is, is not all too pleased about me and my accessories. There's a lot of bad hair days. And I was like, uh, gr- the great thing about a hat is you put it on and that's already done. Like for me, fashion has always been something that's very playful and that's something that's very informative into my mood of the day and it can lift my mood even if I find the you know the right outfits. I can imagine that you know queer people in tiny rooms all over Europe uh, you know would see that performance and it would mean something to them. They put up a message of people all over the world from YouTube channels, queer people, drag people who were talking about why they love the song and it may be teary-eyed, of course, because I'm like, the song was meant to be a little pat on the shoulder for people who maybe needed that pat to be like, it's, this is all good. Like, look at where we, where we came and we're not going back to anywhere else than where we are right now. How has that been for you post-Eurovision? It's been, yeah, one hell of a ride. And, and I think because we did uh, what we did at Eurovision, we ended top 10. Um, also here in Belgium, there was a lot of pride. It was quite amazing too, because coming from what I just said, where in the beginning it was so polarizing and quite hateful. By the end of it, it felt like everyone was standing behind me all of a sudden. It was, it was, that was also quite amazing to feel. And that means that also now I feel like, yeah, here in Belgium, I'm kind of like, which is kind of bizarre, but I'm really part of like mainstream pop. I was nominated for like a, sort of like a a local Grammy awardish kind of thing this summer where, and I really was like, I'm here with like 20 year olds. What the hell am I doing? Like it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, but it's kind of beautiful because I, I feel like I'm not what's, what people expect for a pop star, but that it's being embraced as well. But I'm still teaching, for example. I still do, this, you know, like, we're in my studio. I still do my advertising work. But I think for the first time in my life, there's like a possibility for me to really focus on just being an artist myself. That's amazing. That's amazing. You know, while you're planning the tour, um, if you, you know, if you throw New York in there, yeah. If, if you, if you want to take a trip <laughs> over the Atlantic, um, we, um, uh, Magnus has a guest room. <laughs> yeah, I'm there you go. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, if you, if you want to stop by New York, let us know. And we'll, 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 we'll put we'll, you up. We'll put the, get the whole queer community together. <laughs> <laughs> well, never say never. I'm totally down for coming to New York. Well, if we logistically, we can make something happen. I'm down for Amazing. sure. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for spending the time. Thank you. You, you guys as well. Well, thank you awesome. so much. Thank you. So we are here with three-time Tony nominee, Robin De Jesus. You may have seen him on stage in In the Heights, Boys in the Band, La Caja Faux. You may have seen him on screen in Tick, Tick, Boom and Welcome to Chippendales. But you probably have seen him in any number of the back alleys and bars that cater to the city's <laughs> game. <laughs> so welcome, Robin. Okay, Robin, so to start with, we want to find out what you know about Eurovision. I mean, I literally... No the, wrong answers. The only thing I know about Eurovision is that Will Ferrell did a movie about it. 
Yeah, did you see the movie? No, and I haven't seen the movie. I just seen clips oh. from it, which is so crazy because I do love me some Will Ferrell. But for whatever reason, I have been able to avoid learning anything about this event every year. I mean, I feel like it was in preparation for what's about to happen right now. In preparation um, age. Yes. There's been a lot of preparation age involved. <laughs> I bet. The way I'm feeling today. <laughs> yeah, do you want to tell us about your morning, Robin? <laughs> I'm just going to start with I feel a little heat. Uh, okay, all right. Um, we know how that commercial ends. So. Eurovision really does have a lot of very campy and queer performances. Um, so I think we wanted to I'm just... homophobic. So that's kind of why we brought you on here. Okay. Um, so you're going to be rating these performances <laughs> from one to definitely going to hell. <laughs> from <laughs> so, one to homophobic. One to homophobic, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, are there any um, camp performances that, that you would like to reflect on? Oh, man. Yo, this is in Spanish. There is an amazing Mexican singer named Amanda Miguel. Um, Amanda Miguel, if for those of you that don't understand. Thank you I for speak. translating. You know, I, was, I needed that. <laughs> this is America. Speak English. <laughs> Whatever. Amanda Miguel is an amazing singer. She had a huge hit in the 80s called El Me Mintio. He lied to me. Okay. In moments where there are no lyrics, she'll turn to the audience and she'll put the mic down and she'll say, Hijo de puta which means son of a bitch. And the, and the last bit of the song is just a minute of like the music playing. She's not singing. And like all oh. she does is, is traipse around the stage and like demand applause. We've all been there. We yes. know that feeling. No, it feels very raw. Because <laughs> he did lie to me. <laughs> he did lie to me. That motherfucker <laughs> lied to me. Everything you were like celebrated about this uh, tells me that Eurovision is for you. Because that's really the thing. Like Eurovision has since its inception like drawn the admiration of gays from around the world. And partially that's because the festival has been outspoken on LGBTQ rights. But it's also hard to deny that the festival draws on a certain queer sensibility that goes beyond politics. Yeah, and that's kind of what this game is about because like disaggregating the actually gay from the more general kind of camp can be hard. Um, you know, you've been to equity calls before. <laughs> hard to tell the difference. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So in this game, Robin, we're turning to you for help. So we're going to play some short clips of Eurovision performances. And, and basically the idea is you're going to have to tell us whether this is a song by a performer who's out at the time or whether the whiff of gay sensibility in the performance is just a product of the fact that it's a Eurovision song. Okay. So the game is gay or Eurovision. Gay or Eurovision. And uh, so the first one up is uh, by a group called Subwoofer. And the song is called Give That Wolf a Banana. <sighs> oh, already it's giving us terrestrial. Extraterrestrial bunnies. Yes. Come on, yellow man group. <laughs> a fossy. Broken wrist. Gang. <laughs> I mean, if <gasps> Oh, this is happening. Yeah, it is happening. This it's something about grandma and banana just sounds racist. That's actually the third option. That's Is it Eurovision gay or racist? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now, what are your instincts watching that? Does it feel more gay or more Eurovision? So it feels 
kind of gay. It's just the grandma thing throwing me off. Right, right, right. Which also feels kind of gay. <laughs> I'm going to say this is gay. This is not gay. <sighs> this is just Eurovision. Isn't that insane? This is what allies look like. I know. This is what Harry Styles is doing for all of us. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, does she have thoughts? I don't, I, I, you know what? I don't know Because enough. you know if you come for Harry Styles on a podcast, that is one way to go viral. I'm not trying to get hate crime. I'm not trying. No, the, the, do, you think he's got, do you think he's got goons that are going to come and hate crime? I, I, I got trust issues, so it, absolutely, I believe that. <laughs> but the, the, the thing with Harry Styles is it's, it's less that he's doing it. It's, it's just fascinating the amount of attention that he gets for it. So the next one is uh, Cesar's It's My Life. These ads are gay. <laughs> Tell me finger licking good is not a gay saying. Come on, parachute. I freaking love the parachute elementary school. Are you kidding me? That was the best. Look at this guy did a flip. He was like, for Sparta. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. And actually, it's very fifth element, you guys. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. It's giving. Okay, I. So, so, so what are your thoughts here? Let's I mean, break it down. it's giving the dancing, the costumes, the like, the gesticulations are giving mm -hmm. homosexuality realness. I want to say it straight just to like debate myself, but my gut is like, let's go with straight just, just for kicks. He nailed it. Yeah. He nailed it. It's your vision. Exactly. <laughs> that was impressive. I was like, that was the one he's not going to get. No. I was like so sure yeah. about it. Um, Straight men like being gay. Can you tell us more about that, Robin? What experiences have you had where you found out that straight men like oh being gay? Oh my God. Straight men are so freaking gay. All you got to do is watch athletes. So when you're in high school and like, the 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 like the things I would hear the guys in the football team did in the back of the bus. Oh my god, I am totally right now. <laughs> executive decision switching the topic of this podcast. We are no longer talking about Eurovision. <laughs> These are all Robin's stories from the football bus, which I, mean, I have downloaded that movie. Cocky <laughs> <laughs> voice. Um, no, but like it's it's so funny. Like I, I think sometimes it's really easy to think that straight men are very boundaried and they don't like intimacy and i actually find that to be the complete opposite like my straight guy friends and i have very intimate relationships yeah it's like what they say about all like really homophobic countries where you see all kinds of like homosocial behavior because it's like right and no no and, and straight men also desire non-sexual intimacy yes. and also desire or, or or like one of the things that i i often talk to with my my straight guy friends is in, uh, feeling um, emasculated. Yeah. And how we both experience it, but from completely different yeah, places. Yeah, it's like the, the, the trap of masculinity is terrible and something that actually people go to Eurovision to escape from. Mm, as, that's as fascinating. As as I, can, I, I wonder what you're going to think of this one because I it's one of my favorites of all time. This is Berka Serduchka, um, Lasha Tumbai. Come on, Geppetto. <laughs> Yes! This is the best production of Taboo I have ever seen. <laughs> yes! Yes! I mean, you can't be epileptic and watch this. You can't be a lot of things in and general. That's your situation. Oh, it's so many things I can't comment on. Like, I'm I, overstimulated. I know, it comes at you hard and fast. <laughs> Welcome to your mission, <laughs> 
I mean, I'm here it's for the, the Olympics of overstimulation. <laughs> yeah. I, okay, we're we are gonna pause. I don't really understand a lot of it, and I feel like yeah. I'm better off saying less because <laughs> I, I feel like I'm, I'm, there's something culturally that I'm oh, not yeah. getting. No, maybe. this is deeply rooted in uh, Ukrainian culture. Although I will say that the the uh, most of the radio presenters in Ukraine at the time that this went to Eurovision did not did not love it too queer for them. Really? Mm-hmm. Which now makes me think... Because well, you also point out, this, this, this is a few years ago. Uh-huh. And that outfit is probably the most, one of the most iconic Eurovision outfits. Every year you'll see people with the sort of mirror ball star head. I mean, I'm living for the fact that I can do this choreography. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, me too. I'm like, because you know what? I have to say, tr- trying to learn the Aaliyah video when I was a teenager, like that was a <laughs> so, I want video footage of you learning Aaliyah choreography it's, 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 all day. It's the vulture thing. <laughs> I'm gonna go with gay. So it was definitely a number that was seen as queer, like when it when it came out. The one slight qualification on that is uh, Verka Serduchka, whose real name is Andre, has, whenever asked about his private life, he says he's had one relationship with a woman, and it's complicated. Mm. Which Yo. sounds a little gay to me, honestly. Yeah, what, whatever the story is, it's got way too much drama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's feeling very Tennessee Williams. Oh, that's what it is. You it's know? Tennessee Williams queer. So, bringing it to the next number, this is Mahmoud and Blanco with the song Brivity. I love a yodel and a see-through dirt. I mean, I want them to be gay. Is that a problem? Yes, beat his ass and love him. <laughs> so that I've never been like pro violence in a relationship, but right now with them, I'm okay with. It. I don't know the right kind of violence. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> if, it's, if, it, if it's consensual. All right. So yes. all, all, all of your thoughts and feelings. It's that one is so visually misleading that it ha- that I feel like it has to be straight, but I want it to be gay. I will say, Robin, that you you kind of nailed it because it is a little confusing, um, even in the, the final answer. Yeah, Magnus, do you want to um, tell us why? Mahmoud and his music videos is very clear kind of about his leanings, I should say, but he never really comments on his sexuality. He says, it's all in my music. Blanco is straight. <laughs> Blanco, with a name like Blanco, tell me he's not racist. His name is white supremacy. <laughs> there was an aspect to it that felt very like high school gay straight alliance. Like the straight guys doing community service and engaging I mean, with the gay guy. I mean, you nailed it. Yeah, mm-hmm. like I just felt like it was it was a little bit like volunteer work. It definitely felt like service. Yeah, and I have to say, I do feel complicated about the whole Mahmood. Like, uh, I don't talk about my sexuality. It's in my music and stuff like that. I feel like most people who shy away from the question in that way don't put the imagery into the music video the way he does. And so he like, he definitely sh- doesn't shy away from it. But if I still have to sign an NDA before I suck his dick, like it's yeah, like that Yeah, it's just like, it's <laughs> like, it's like who's paying for the lawyer fees these who's days? And my, my jaw, <laughs> <laughs> shit. I do think there was also the issue of like, Blanco only let Mahmoud suck his dick. <laughs> if he refused to identify as gay. It's sort of one of those no homo things. You know? <laughs> See, the, 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 the thing is, too, is like, I'm all about, I have these moments sometimes where I'm like, we have to take, as queer men, we have to take extra steps 
that like heterosexual folks don't have to. So I, I do understand the argument of like, well, why do I have to come out if straight people don't have to come out? I, I'm also like, well, everyone has a right to go on their own journey and heal in whatever way, because you never know what, everyone has their own level of fucked upness. Yeah. But then at the same time, you're like, well, people are dying. I'm not saying that like every like person in the world just like has to, you know, like particularly people who are like facing stuff. But when it comes to like musicians at where it's like, yeah, you're going to lose some fans. It's kind of like Taylor Swift not endorsing Hillary Clinton. Uh, you know, where you're just like... Yeah. Exactly. It's like all hands on deck, y'all. Yeah. And all hands will be on deck for a couple of generations. Yes. <laughs> I feel you. And particularly, but he also lives in a very accepting country, Charlie. Italy. <laughs> <laughs> and look, you know, like the thing is that he has a target on his back in Italy, like all these like crazy right-wing politicians. He's been uh, in Eurovision twice. And both times the fucking right wing flipped out. Really? So I'm not, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yo, Eurovision's getting my respect. Yeah, well, this was this was this is kind of the hope with the podcast, right? Okay, so we have one more. One um, more. This is a uh, a performer named Paul Oscar. It's giving Madonna Vogue. <laughs> I'm living for him because in his mind, he is like like peak '90s TRL music video. Yes. Yes. Right? right? He feels like, in my mind, he thinks he's Jamiroquai. And that is very Walter Mercado. Walter Mercado was a Puerto Rican astrologer who's very famous across the Americas. His whole thing was like, he always left people feeling empowered and centered on love and kindness. And he was incredibly effeminate. And he wore oh, these wow. super bedazzled gowns. Oh, you know what? They just came out with a documentary about yes. him, right? Yes. yes. I've been meaning to watch that. Lin-Manuel Miranda, I want to say, is one of, yes. like one yeah, of the producers like on it. it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Walter was like, existed in this super campy, effeminate, uh, he lived He lived this very campy aesthetic um, and was campy himself and, and managed to like avoid the sexuality conversation even though people knew he was gay. Right, right. But even the way this, this guy, Paul Oscar, like, gesticulated and and even the rings and like it, and it just that, felt very Walter. So then what is what is your call? I mean like you're probably gonna say it straight, but I'm gonna say that felt that felt pretty gay to me. A hundred percent gay. Okay, word. You nailed it. Which is which like I thought the women were gonna trip you up, but from the beginning you were like, it's it's those are backup dancers. <laughs> those are not objects of his affection. I did not feel that at all. If anything, yeah. if anything, what I saw was a vocalist saying, Yes, fierce, queen, work. Yes. Like <laughs> he just wanted like that energy around him. And listen, I just want the audience to know I don't mean to be this like reductive in these conversations. This is a entirely reductive game. <laughs> There's no way to play this game without being reductive. Yeah. That was the that was the first performance, right, Charlie, by um an out gay man at Eurovision. Yes, wow. he was the first out gay performer at Eurovision. Um, Come on, Daddy. You know, I often refer to uh, Eurovision as the original RuPaul's Drag Race because a lot of the like over the top campness, the overacting, the wind machines, the sparkles, this is some something that Eurovision has done for so long. And and um, I, th I think, Charlie, we might have succeeded in uh, planting the seed of a new Eurovision superfan today. Yeah, I mean, what I've been trying to do with Robin since the beginning is plant my seeds. So. <laughs> well, plant your seeds, darling, <laughs> well. <laughs> um, okay, so Magnus, do you want to move on but, to the next well, one? <laughs> I, I do want to say, I do, I want to say this, though. I, I had this therapist that used to say years ago, like, whenever you are an honest human being, that is perceived as weird. 
the more honest you are. And I think we even feel that way when we love something. Like when when there are artists that we really love, we're like, oh, that person is like a little weird. And like, I'm really into it, you know? With your vision, like not leaning in to the fullest version of whatever you're creating is is more the frowned upon thing. If you, unless you're like someone who really follows it, a regular viewer is hearing 26 songs maybe for the first time. And most of the artists they've never heard of before. How can you stick out when there's no brand recognition? And it's it needs to be the most unapologetic, most yeah. authentic, most itself that it really is. So, I mean, we want to thank you so much for joining us on this, uh, Robin. Uh, what are your biggest sort of takeaways from Eurovision? And do you think it's something you're going to be looking more into in the future? Oh, 100%. Like, I've been missing out. <laughs> it all is genuine entertainment, but there's something about it that also really gives you a bit of a giggle. And so I'm here for all of it. I'm here to listen to good music, to culturally kind of experience stuff outside of our own country. We're so isolated in the U.S. Everyone always comes to our global events, but very there are very few global events that we that attend. We, yes. With that fervor, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I want to I wanna have that global exchange. Oh my God. So you're coming totally. to Sweden with us, and right? And that's like, uh-huh. sometimes you might say that something is like a little mysterious and, and you need someone to like help explain it, you know, like, like a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I love the plug. Thank you, Robin. This has been absolutely amazing. Thank you, Charlie. Um, thank you so much. I mean, I don't know if it gets much gayer than that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think it does. Um, and we hope, you know, you enjoyed how gay this was as much as we did. Uh, and next week, tune in for our episode about the political history of Eurovision. I am so excited for the guests that we have on this next episode. Um, first of all, we have um, the 2016 winner of Eurovision, Jamala. Now, she represented Ukraine against the backdrop of Putin's invasion of Crimea. And she did it while singing a song about Stalin driving her great-grandmother from that same region 70 years before. I mean, insane. Wild. The interview is incredible. And then we talked to uh, Brooke Gladstone, the Peabody Award-winning journalist and host of public radios on the media. She actually covered the fall of the Soviet Union. So she really was the perfect person to talk to about Eurovision's handling of political songs. Uh, Until then... Happy Happy Eurovision. Eurovision!